or for the sake of the owner. Last week, we looked at four basic characteristics of stewardship, and these apply across the board, whether it's um, totally secular and non-religious or whether it's from a Christian perspective as well. And that's this. Basically, stewardship begins, it sort of begins and ends with the owner. It starts with the proprietor. Uh, basically, the owner owns the stuff. He says, this is my stuff, and it's your job to manage it. And so your purpose, then, what you're going to do is try to make a profit for me. So our job, or if you're a Christian, your life is defined by the owner and his purposes. So in business, we'd say, you know, it's the owner, our boss, and his purpose. In life, we would say it's God because he owns everything. And so his purpose becomes our purpose. And whether we're successful or not depends on whether we fulfill his purpose, just like working for your employer. So stewardship then comes with not only a proprietor and a purpose, but also comes with a promise and a process. And basically the promise is if you do well, you get a reward. If you don't, you get in trouble. And as you know from life and uh, faith, both require effort and faith. They require the effort to do your homework, do the research, figure out what's the best investment, and you know, put your back to the plow and go for it. They require faith because you know that you can't predict the future. There's lots of unseen variables. There's risk inherent in anything that involves reward. And in order to move forward, at some point, you just have to take a step of faith. So this is stewardship, or this is life. This is Successful Living 101 with Pastor Jeremy. And I was thinking about this series, and I thought, you know, there could be a number of people are sort of asking the question, how does this connect? You know, because you've talked about God... You've talked about family, and now you're kind of talking about finances. So what's the you know, thread that ties this whole thing together? How do these things work? And as I looked at today's message, it really came into focus for me. And I think that thread or that theme is this, is whether it's your family or whether it's your finances or whether it's your relationship with God or anything else, the bottom line, fundamental presupposition to all of this is that the gospel is our only hope. The gospel is our only hope. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. And our family isn't perfect either. My finances aren't perfect. My career's not perfect. Nothing that I do is perfect. I keep hoping for a perfect day, but it never happens. I always mess up somehow. And so the reality is, if I'm going to base my hope for success and for the future on me, I'm going to end up like Solomon and just say, vanity of vanities, it's all a wash. Why try? Everything is a wash. But if I'm basing my hope on the guaranteed future of our eternal, all-powerful God, then there's a chance for redemption, for restoration, for righteousness, then there's hope. And all of a sudden, this stewardship thing, which looks like, oh, my finances, turns into, ah, oh, my future, and God is good. And no matter what's going on here, I know that he'll make it a success. That's a whole different path. So the gospel is our only hope. Now, today, I want to do something um, that may or may not cost me. I'm not sure. We'll see. I think each preacher has about nine lives, and I count them as nine sermons. So if that's the case, I'm going to burn one of them today. (laughs) 
I'm going after it. I think I've burnt one already. But on the heels of the Reformation, 500 years of five solos, I figure I'm in good company to attack some long-standing church traditions. And today is no exception. I'm going to go after something today that there is all kinds of false teaching surrounding it. There's any extreme from legalism to prosperity gospel to whatever. And really, as you can probably tell if you've been in church, what I'm talking about today is the tithe. I am going to attack the tithe. My goal in today's sermon is to basically deconstruct everything you've ever heard about the tithe and then rebuild it. I want to pull the rug out from under it, do a complete remodel, knock down the walls, and then come at it and say, now that we've destroyed everything you once thought, let's rebuild this from a biblical perspective and see what it looks like. Now to be clear, again, my motivation is not to get more money out of you. Instead, I'm motivated by the fact that there is significant malpractice surrounding this issue. I think many of the preachers who get up here and preach on the tithe should be disbarred. That there is misinformation rampant, that there is unquestioned church tradition, and ultimately, and this is my great concern, it's a gospel issue. It's literally a gospel issue. So young people, you'll grow up and Perhaps someday you'll get married and you'll come into a relationship and either he's making money or you're making money or both making money and at some point you're going to have to say, hey, how much do we give to the church? This is where this comes in. <laughs> this is big stuff. For successful living, you're going to have to know how to take care of what God has given you and you're going to have to know how to interact with all the messages you're receiving, both from your culture and your church and your friends and your spouse and you've got to process those through a grid and then say, okay, now, what are we going to do? How are we going to take what God has given us and use it for his glory? So today I want to do that. I'm going to demolish and rebuild, and I'm going to do it through two steps. Um, the first step is this, is I'm going to take a deep dive into tithing. So with the theme of the gospel being our only hope, I'm going to look at tithing in a way that probably you've never seen before. I'm going to go after it, not because I'm interested in the minutia of a legal system, but because I want you to see what is real and what is true, and then be able to process it on your own. So we're going to attack tithing full, full force, and then we're going to look at successful living for a few moments after that. So let's talk, talk about the tithe then, and ask the question, what is it? You know, we should just start with that question, because I don't know how it is for you, but me and my wife, we may talk about something, and she uses this word, and I use this word, and then we come to find out we mean something totally different. <laughs> like, you said that, I said that, but boy, do we mean something different. <laughs> Let's figure out what this word means, start there, and then we'll, we'll move forward. So we'll ask, what is a tithe? What is it? What is that definition of that word? And then we'll say, okay, so how did they do it in the Old Testament? And then after that, We'll, we'll look at and see if there's any exceptions. Like, is there an exception to the rule, or is it just like this all the time? So let's look first at the tithe, and the way I want to do that is through Psalm uh, 33, 2. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, it's uh, up on the screen. This is the first verse on the biblical doctrine of tithing. Do you see it? Anybody see tithing in there? It's in there. Um, the reason is, is because the Hebrew word is maser, 
And uh, that definition is played out in this verse, and this is a tribute to our musicians. But here is Psalm 33:2, which says this, Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with harp of ten strings. Uh, there's the Hebrew word maser, which means basically ten. So you'll see it here in the next verse as well in Psalm 92, 1 through 4. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. So I did leave a little hint on that slide. Do you see the word tithe in there? No, it's too small. Lute. Lute. The word lute, it's basically like 10 string. Like think of a 10 string guitar or lyre or musical instrument. Basically the word tithe, maser, means 10. Means 10. That's what the word means. It does mean 10. So if you've heard that the word tithe means 10, you're on the right track. So what does it mean then? Well, I guess we've got it all figured out. Tithe means 10, therefore 10 is 10, right? So I should give like this, I think here's a picture of what most people think of when they hear the word tithe, which has a stack of coins. There we go. 10%, right? Give a tithe, give 10%. If you have 10 coins over here, you give one of those 10 to God, and therefore tithe is 10. Did it, right? Check. Done. That's what a lot of people think. Some people actually read some of the Old Testament tithing verses, and we'll read one in a little bit, where you hear the blessing that's included in it, and they're like, wow, you know what? This is even better than that. This looks like this. Man, if I give this tithe, and it's just like, ka-ching, right? this is better than the casino. This is guaranteed. The Lord's making a promise. There's no risk involved. All I have to do is give, and I'll be blessed. Hey, man, we give. I'll bless your whatever if you give. <laughs> run if you hear that. Um, but I think actually perhaps run if you hear the first as well. I'll show you why. Um, some of you have probably, I don't have a picture of this, but you've probably got one in your mind. You've heard the sort of Charles Finney or 1800 revivalist preacher stand up on the stage and be like, 10% or you're going to hell. It's okay to laugh, and it's not meant to be real. Thank you. 10% or you're insane. You know? Wow, boy, I better, I better hit that. Man, I'm, I don't want to go to hell. You know, and they jump, and they scream, and they yell, and they pound the pulpit, and I'm all for passion. Let me tell you, I am. But not for that. That's not what you're to be passionate about. What happens is when you look at the Old Testament, you look at the word tithe, yes, maser means ten. That's correct. But what did the law actually require? Is it just 10% of your stuff? Or is it 10% of your profit? Or is it 10% of your capital gains or your interest or your... What is it? It's kind of hard to figure it out, especially in an agrarian society where you're not exchanging necessarily some medium all the time. So what do you do? Well, here's what they did. Let me show you. And I promise, this is gonna, I think this is going to help you understand what we're talking about with tithing. What does the law require? Is it basically 10%? And by the way, 
What am I saying? Are you in sin if you've been tithing 10% your whole life? No, 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 no. If your heart is right, your heart is right. By all means, don't, don't get me wrong. What I want to do is show you what it actually is. If your heart's in the right place, it's all good. God bless you. But here's what it actually is. What does the law require? Well, here's where the demolition part comes in. This is where I'm going to deconstruct things a little bit. First of all, let's look at the Levitical tithes. That sounds like a big word. But what it is is this. There's these guys named after Levi. And so we call them the Levites. Exactly right. And he was a priest and they're priests too. And there's tribes, 12 of them. And the thing is, is most of the folks in Israel get a certain allotment. This is going to be your portion of the land. However, the Levites don't. Your inheritance, Levi, is the Lord himself. And you are not going to live as a farmer off the land, but you are going to live by grace through faith, dependent upon God. Your job is to take care of the sacrificial system. Your job is to take care of temple worship. Your job is to purify things before the holy days, and you will be engaged in that so much that you won't be able to go out and farm. You'll have to do this all the time. You will depend on me, that is God, not that I'm God, but God for your living. So here's how that worked, what happened in the Old Testament. Numbers 18, um, the Lord God is giving the law, and he says this, To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance. They don't have a 403B, a pension plan, anything else. They've got this. In return for the service that they do. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution of the Lord, to the Lord, I have given the Levites for an inheritance. So basically, what happens is, because the Levites aren't working in the fields, they're working in the tabernacle or temple area, the people who are working in the fields are going to come in with their tithe, and the Levites are going to live off of that. It's basically like the folks who are working out here are going to take care of the folks who are working here. It's a pretty simple thing. And what happens is, they do it once a year, and it works. It sustains them. So there's the tithe. But wait. At the top of the slide, what does it say? That is the first tithe. You mean there's more? Oh, yes. <laughs> Don't stop there, faithful tither. If you really want to fulfill the law, you've got a few more to go. Here's the next one. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 and following... There's a second tithe. And I would call this tithe the tithe of compassion. It's kind of like a care offering or a special offering. You could think of it as a missions offering, like we're going to do next week. But the thing about it is, just like our missions offering, it's seasonal. It's not something you do all the time. So when you read this, what does it say? It says, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns, and basically, verse 29 is going to tell us, for all the people who don't have anything, for the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance, and the sojourner, they've left their land, the fatherless, they have no inheritance, and the widow, she's definitely broken that culture, who are within your towns, they shall come and eat and be filled, and the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands and all that you do. There's where the prosperity people get their stuff too. So what is this saying? Well, thus far, we have the Levitical tithe, which is 10%. Now, there's this second tithe, which is 10%. Now, ready, math majors? Here we go. 
10% every three years is how much per year? 3.3, right? <laughs> you guys didn't answer very fast. I'm like, I know you can do fancier math than that. Come on. 3.3 per year. 10% divided by 3 is 3.3. So 3.3, 3 times, almost complete 10. So at this point, what you have, if you're talking about annual tithes, is 13.3%. So we're raising the tithe bar a little bit, okay? Now, the next one is actually one of my favorites, and you'll see why here in a minute. But this one is called the tithe of feast by some, and called the tithe of delight by me. And it's a little bit like this. Kiddos, if you're listening, here's what would happen. It's like if mom and dad said, okay, I got my paycheck. Now, I'm going to take 10% of that paycheck. Here you go. Head to Toys R Us. Do whatever you want. Have a good time. Or whatever. Maybe it's not Toys R Us. Whatever your place is. Do it. Go for it. This tithe is amazing. This is called the tithe of consumption, and basically what it is, it's a feast before the Lord where the people take 10% of their stuff and just enjoy it. They delight themselves before the Lord. And it, it blows my mind because what happens here is I think I got this image in my mind about the legalistic, ritualistic, law-driven preacher who's thumping the pulpit and saying, you got to tithe or you're in sin. And by the way, don't drink alcohol and don't smoke and don't hang with people who do and da 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 and he goes on and he makes his list. Now, let's be clear. Um, smoking is bad for your health and overconsumption is perhaps worse. True. And what's even more sad is we could feed the entire world based on merely the grain that we ferment and throw away. That's sad. But... What the Bible does is not necessarily forbid or prohibit alcohol. What it instead does, it says, use all that you have for the glory of God. And this is one instance that flies in the face of legalism. Because for the same person who gets up there and gives that sermon, I am just befuddled because what essentially they are doing, listen to this, they are commanding what God did not command and prohibiting what he did command. They're making commands that he didn't and prohibiting things that he did say to do. It's exact opposite. Here it is in this verse. Look, Deuteronomy chapter 14. This is where it's at. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from from the field year by year. So you see that that's annual. And then before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat it. So you're consuming it of your grain and of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd or flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Oh, okay, I get it. What they mean by wine there is actually like not refrigerated grape juice because it's not the same as our distillation processes today, and therefore we can still be teetotalers, right? Verse 24. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far, then 
you turn your tithe, whether it's a sheep or a crop or whatever, into money, bind up the money in your hand, and listen to this, kids, go to the place wherever the Lord your God chooses and spend it for whatever you desire. Whole hog, go all out. Oxen or sheep or wine or even... Strong drink, that's not wine. Whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat it before the Lord your God and rejoice for your household. Man, that's stewardship. That'll preach. <laughs> Let's party. <laughs> How would that go over in that church? I don't know. But what I see is this. When I look at the Old Testament, in this basic setup, just as a general rule of thumb, you have at least three tithes. The first is the Levitical, which is 10%. Here's a slide. The second is the Compassion, which you could say is 3.3% because it's every third year. And the other one is the uh, tithe of delight. So what you've done is you've upped the ante to 23.3%, tithing alone. Let us not forget the annual feast, the sacrifices and offerings. <laughs> what are we up to now? I don't know. I didn't have time to count. But it's a lot. So you who take pride in your 10%, I say throw it all away. You're not tithing. By the way, you're not keeping the Sabbath either. None of you here today are keeping the Sabbath unless you walked across the street from your home to come to church. First of all, today's not the Sabbath. <laughs> Yesterday was. Second of all, if you've left your home, you've traveled too far for a Sabbath day's journey. You've broken the law. You can't keep the law. Do you really want to keep the law? You need to add the other 612 commandments as well. That's what Galatians says, or Jesus says, man, you think you want to keep the law? Add the whole thing. Good luck. How successful were they? Not a chance. How successful am I? Nowhere close. I don't want the law. I want the gospel. Amen. If there is any hope at all, the only hope is in the gospel. It's not in the law. That's done. It's gone. It's fulfilled. It's complete. You're not tithing. None of you are. You're not fulfilling the law. And you're not keeping the Sabbath. You're in Christ. And that is so much better. Don't put a silly old yoke back on your head again and think you're something special because you did. Throw it off, stomp it in the dirt, and do better. Whew. So you see how I feel about that. <laughs> I'm not really excited about the tithing preaching that some people do. I'm trying to give you biblical preaching. And here's what happens then. I've deconstructed it because I've said, look, this is what the Bible actually said. So you may be asking the question, so what do I do then? You just said don't give 10%. Well, you can give 10%. You can give 9%. You can give 20%. I don't care. Give as much as you can and then give more. Give till it hurts. Give not because you're compelled or under compulsion, but because you're under grace and in Christ. Give not because you're giving God what's His. Actually, everything's God's. You shouldn't be giving because you think you're fulfilling some requirement, you're giving out of the grace of God. 
it's kind of hard to say, but I'm going to try to do it like this. What I'm going to do in the next five minutes is compare these two covenants or contracts side by side. The only way I can do it is just say it like this. Here's one, here's the other. Here's one, here's the other. And I'm going to show you how the one we're under is so much better than the other. This is the way it works. So successful living or stewardship is like this. There was an old covenant, right? There's an Old Testament. The bulk of your Bible, boom, big chunk, old covenant, Old Testament, old contract. That thing has terms, and they're spelled out extensively. There's also a new covenant, a new contract, the other side of your Bible. That also has terms. But the difference is this. The old covenant is codified in written legalese, first in stone and then in parchment. The new covenant, according to Jeremiah, is not written in stone, but instead written on your hearts, which are to turn from stone to flesh. The old covenant has legal definitions and says this is what it is. The letter of the law. The new covenant says it's not the letter, but the spirit. The old covenant has practices like circumcision, sacrifice, tithing, and Sabbath keeping. The New Testament has principles. Instead of physical change to your body, instead, your heart is being transformed. Instead of multiple sacrifices, you have a single sacrifice. Instead of tithing a set percentage, you have the example of the widow who gave her everything. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, give God what's his. He actually says, it's all mine, so give it all. Sabbath keeping is the only holy day versus today where every day is holy. What you have now is so much better. We look back and it's clear to us over the corridor of time because we can say, oh, this all makes sense. All the sacrifices, all the priests, all the temple worship fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, that covenant, that contract is complete. It's no longer in force. Now, let me ask you this question. What... What happened that fulfilled that covenant or that contract? What happened? The first coming of Christ, right? So that contract is gone, and now we're under another contract. What will fulfill the second contract? The second coming of Christ. Same exact thing. That was that. This is this. That contract's gone because Christ came. This contract's here for a while, but it will go away as well. And then, wow, that's the good stuff. That's what we're really looking for. Our feast is no longer on temporary things like bread, grain, or wine, but on Christ himself. We feast on our eternal inheritance 
just like the Levites. So, you come to the teaching on tithing, and what do you say, Pastor Jeremy? Well, sure, give. Give. Why? Because it's good for you. It's good for your heart. It's good for your soul. It's good for your wallet. It's good for everything. It demonstrates your priorities are correct. It demonstrates that you understand that the church is not an exchange for service, but a living, breathing organism, or, organism as the extension of the body of Christ. Stewardship is giving God everything you have. So that when you interact with people of your income bracket, they will look at you and say the same thing that Stanley Tam's friends say to him. What? You did what? Here we are enjoying this and enjoying this and enjoying this because we can. We're living right here and you make as much as or more than us and you're living right here. Why is that? Because I'm not looking to live right here. I want to live up here. I'm not part of this part of that. This is not my hope, man. The gospel is my only hope. There's no other chance for success or joy. All of these things fall. I'm looking for something more. So give. Give till it hurts. Give way more than you think you should. Why? Because the church is the primary place of your spiritual oversight, the preached word, and the starting point for outreach and mission. Then as you live, you live by faith and by effort, knowing that you have a promised reward and that the owner will return. And when he does, he finds you, and what are you doing? Using everything you have for his good and his glory. And what does he say then? Well done, good and faithful servant. It's very clear that your whole life, everything you have, has been all about the gospel. It is your foundation for living and for giving. It drove everything you did. Therefore, enter in to the joy of your reward. Church, I want you to be blessed. I do. But I'm not saying it like those other guys. It's not give so you get blessed now. It's give so that you get the greater blessing then. Be stewards over everything that God has given you. And give everything you have for His glory. And the only real motivation, the only hope you have for doing that, is the same motivation and the same hope you have for everything else. The Gospel. Christ's victory wins in the end. Father, we thank you for our eternal hope. Lord, come back soon. We pray that Jesus will return. I'm tired. I'm tired of working and tired of working hard. I would like to see um, your eternal reign be realized here and now. But I pray that God even even if I endure all my days and never see your return, that you would be causing me to be faithful the whole time. Be with our church. Lord, be with our families. 
be with our community and our relationship with you. And God, we pray that you just use everything, all that we have, for your honor and glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.